Welcome to Smarter Markets, a free weekly podcast featuring stories from the entrepreneurs and icons of commodities, capital markets, and technology, ranting on the inadequacies of our systems and riffing on ideas for how to solve them. Together, we explore the questions, is capitalism in crisis, and will building smarter markets be the antidote? And now, here's your host, Eric Townsend. Welcome to the sixth episode of Smarter Markets, a weekly podcast that explores how financial markets could be redesigned and improved to better serve market participants and society as a whole. Smarter Markets is made possible by a grant from Abex Technologies. I'm your host, Eric Townsend. Mike Green of Logica Funds is one of the smartest people I know in the world of finance, and he's also one of a select few who's willing to call a spade a spade and acknowledge that he, along with most of the smartest people in finance, makes his living by exploiting deficiencies in the current design of financial markets. Despite that Mike makes his living exploiting the shortcomings of the current design of financial markets for the benefit of the investors in his fund, I know that he also shares my passionate belief that financial markets are meant to serve society and that we need to start looking at how to fix their deficiencies rather than just making a buck for ourselves by exploiting our understanding of what's wrong with them for our own financial advantage. In this week's interview, Mike and I will discuss some of the hidden incentives that make the system something other than what it first appears to be to the investing public, and then we'll go on to discuss what's needed to fix these problems and redesign smarter market systems to realign them with the purposes for which they're supposed to exist. My interview with Mike Green is coming up next. And now with this week's special guest, Here's your host, Eric Townsend. Mike, thanks so much for joining me on Smarter Markets. I want to start with a topic that you and I have discussed before, and I know you and Grant Williams have discussed, which is you've said BlackRock and Vanguard, some of the biggest fund managers in the industry, are not really in the business of managing funds, or at least that's not where their real revenue source is. Please explain. First of all, thank you for having me on, Eric. It's a pleasure to, to be here on Smarter Markets. When I say that Vanguard and BlackRock aren't in the business of managing funds, clearly they do manage funds. But as you're clarifying, their source of revenue, so the source of quote-unquote profits, particularly in the case of BlackRock, which reports these profits, and in the case of Vanguard, where it's mutualized with the shareholders, is really primarily drawn from the actual lending activities. So the shares that they are lending out to those who would like to short them. So embedded, when you think about the dynamic of a Vanguard mutual fund, where they are charging one, two, or three basis points, or in a situation where no money is being paid in some fund cases, there has to be a source of revenue. These are not public goods that are being provided simply because they want to do the right thing. Right? There's everything ranging from custody fees, which across extremely large asset pools are quite significant. But the single most important one is actually the money that they are able to create by taking the shares that have been purchased with their investors' money and lending those back out to those who would like to short. When you do that, you receive profits associated with the provision of those shares. That source of return is really what allows them to subsidize the cost of operating these funds. Now, this is really important, I think, for people to understand. And, and the reason I say it's so important is if you look at what we perceive or what the retail public perceives, well, isn't it great that we live in an age where you know the fees for these funds are much lower than they used to be? And I have visibility thanks to the SEC protecting me. The, the, the funds have to disclose their management fees. And I can see this BlackRock fund or this Vanguard fund has a very, very low management fee. But wait a minute. What's really going on, and this goes back to the, the old social media adage of if it seems like it's free, then you are the product. They're selling you out. What's really going on here is when I invest in that, that mutual fund or that, that ETF fund, really the way they're making their money is by taking my investment, the shares that I bought with my money, and they're loaning them out to short sellers whose 
selling activities are going to undermine my profits, people who want the stock to go down. And by the way, that creates a financial incentive for BlackRock and Vanguard not to choose the very best stocks that they think are going to increase in price to put into their funds, but they're actually better off if they choose the stocks that the most people are likely to want to borrow for the purpose of selling short because that's where they're going to make the most money. And they're not invested themselves in their own fund. They get paid primarily by lending out the assets that are truly owned with the savings of the retail investor to short sellers. And it creates a financial incentive that doesn't really serve society well at all. But most people have no idea that this is going on. How do we get to the point where this is the way the system works? Well, I think part of the challenge is, is that the system has been very focused on the idea that costs to investors are the underlying dynamic, right? That the single most important thing to think about whether you're getting a good deal is how much of a premium you are being charged for the services. And there are obvious examples of abuse, right? Within broader markets, we're very familiar with the two and 20 type dynamic associated with hedge funds, which in many cases has been a way to drive much higher fees. We've seen natural pressure on that as performance has struggled. And those who are familiar with my work understand part of the reason why I think that is, is actually tied back to the phenomenon of BlackRock and Vanguard, as we've discussed. But the idea that charging somebody what it is going to cost you plus some profit to provide a service that is actually in the process of trying to do what equity or fixed income markets really are supposed to do, which is to price financial instruments or price the cost of capital by allocating it to those places where it could be best utilized, right? That's unfortunately a very painful conclusion that we're not serving that interest anymore. The markets have increasingly ceased to function in that role because what we're really focused on is this headline of what are the management fees? And then there's a second dynamic, which is a general misunderstanding about what drives performance, right? So the challenge in markets is, is that they are by themselves actually derivatives, right? The stock itself is not actually a tangible asset or an underlying. The company and the business enterprise is the underlying. The stock is the derivative of those cash flows. That derivative will trade with the market forces. And if you're allocating all of the incremental capital to those who don't care about how that capital is allocated, they simply presume others have done the work. And as you have highlighted in this, are increasingly benefiting from including securities that are the most controversial, that should have the highest short interest or the highest cost of lending them out. And I'm not suggesting, by the way, that BlackRock or Vanguard are actively doing that. I don't think that's the case, but I do think that you have to be aware of those incentives. When you have that dynamic, you start to break the system. And this is what we're seeing where the system is increasingly, you hear this phrase, the, increasing, the system is increasingly at odds or diverging from the fundamentals. It's a natural byproduct of the way the system is currently constructed. I want to talk about another apparent free lunch, which is just in the last year or so, we've seen a shift in retail equity trading. We're most stock trades are free. It started with the Robinhood platform and then Fidelity and Schwab and everybody else had to match commission-free trading costs zero. Isn't that wonderful? But in reality, and this goes back to that social media adage, when it's free, you are the product. So in these transactions where it seems like you're getting something for free, in reality, your transaction volume is not actually executing on an exchange. Your transactions are being sold to these operators called systematic internalizers. Explain how that works. So a systematic internalizer is a proprietary trading firm that will take your trade without it ever hitting an exchange. They're allowed to do this because of a regulatory dynamic that effectively was presented on the framework of, again, saving costs, right? When you trade on an exchange, you must trade, pay an exchange fee. By keeping that off of the exchange, you're able to theoretically reduce the cost. But that opens the system up to extraordinary abuse because the way the legislation was written, the regulations were written, and I just want to clarify, it's not actually legislation, it's regulations. When that regulation was written, the idea was very straightforward. Well, 
we can do this at lower cost and therefore save money for the investors. And the way that we're going to monitor this system is we're going to presume that the exchange has liquidity and that the range of prices on the exchange is the quote unquote right prices. And so as long as that prop trading firm executes within that range, they're doing quote unquote a good thing and saving money for people. Now, what was not considered was as trades increasingly moved off of the exchanges, the exchanges themselves became subject to the potential for abuse by sending a small trade through the exchange that creates a wide band of pricing or an extreme move on pricing. I can then actually turn to the, to the money that is flowing to me directly or the trades that are flowing to me directly without going to the exchange. And I can very easily execute within that band, taking buys right, and executing them against the ask and taking sells and executing against the bid that's been posted on the exchange and pocketing that profit, scalping off pennies and nickels at every step in the process. Mike, just to summarize how this works, when we see these free transactions, I can buy and sell stocks and, and you know, buy at the market, sell at the market. I'm going to do these transactions on my Schwab or my Fidelity or my Robinhood platform or what have you online. And it seems to be free. What's really going on is those transactions never execute on any stock exchange. Rather, a prop trading firm pays for the privilege of executing that transaction for Schwab or for Fidelity or for Robinhood or whoever. And what they do is because of this, I believe it's regulation NMS from 2007, says at any one second interval of time, they're allowed to pick any price that happened on the real exchange during that time. So if you're a buyer, they're going to give you one price. If you're a seller, they're going to give you a different price. And that's perfectly legal as long as they say, well, but those prices came from the real exchange. But there's nothing illegal about that very same prop trading firm using sophisticated computer systems to game the trading on that exchange to make sure the bid-ask spread is wide at the particular instant that they're filling transactions for these various different online brokerage firms giving the buyers a different price than the sellers. So in reality, everybody's not really getting a fair deal, but nobody sees it because a very, very clever system has been conceived to exploit this regulation, which is now, what, 13 years old, but the regulators haven't done anything to update it or to consider the way it's being abused. Is that right? Yes. I mean, I I would not... I might not go so far as to say the regulators haven't considered or have not done anything, right? But one of the challenges is, was when you're talking about these systems, they are so complex and the system of incentives is so high for those inside the system to manipulate would be the generous word, what the regulators actually get to see, that it is very much creating the conditions that you're talking about. And you see this in the profitability of prop trading operations, right? This is In many ways, this is no different than what has happened for a very long time in the fixed income markets in the days prior to the Volcker rule, right? So the prop trading activities of a Goldman Sachs or of a Lehman Brothers or um, a Morgan Stanley would have involved playing this middleman role. I want to sell a bond. They offer me a price. They take it into inventory and they sell it off to somebody else. There was no requirement that said I would have to match the buyer and the seller, right? I could sit there as the individual at the center of the bond trading universe and take pennies off the price in the transaction. This is the same thing that's happening with the systematic internalizers who have paid for this order flow. They are effectively doing exactly that. They are aware of the buyers. They are aware of the sellers. They have no requirement to match them. And by inserting themselves in the, in the middle of the system, they're able to basically lock in a guaranteed profit of fractions of a cent or cents per share. Mike, the thing I think we really need to focus on as we think about how we make markets smarter in the future is the system of incentives that we have. By your own description, and listeners, just so you don't think that I'm ambushing Mike here, we talked about this off the air and he agreed to discuss this. You're one of the guys, Mike, who's basically in the business of exploiting the deficiencies in the system. You can see things that are broken in the system, but 
there's no incentive for you to try to fix it. You can make a much more lucrative living by exploiting the deficiencies in the design of the system to your own benefit. And when there is an opportunity to legally make a significant profit by doing something that exploits a shortcoming of the system's design, you do that. And all of the other smartest guys in the finance industry do that. Who's left at the end of the day to fix the systems and get rid of these deficiencies and make the world a better place? Well, I think this is one of the challenges that's created. And so first of all, yes, I agree with you that the incentive structure is for me to figure out how to exploit the system as compared to how to ameliorate the challenges that we're discussing. And there are benefits associated with those types of loopholes, right? Middlemen or those who are facilitating transactions need those spreads to exist in order to create enough value for them to pay for you know their lives, et cetera. And they are providing an element of a service as they do that. Right? And certainly the way I think about it. But there is a difference when you effectively are capturing the system. And the system that we have in place today is one that is increasingly consolidated the dynamics of the, the investment that is required to make those transactions work is quite significant. I need to spend an incredible amount of money to put myself onto or into a system that allows me to execute these transactions as we're describing in a way that appears completely transparent or appears not to have at all happened to effectively those participants. You mentioned a second, right? Well, a second seems like an infinitesimal amount of time to most people. But in the world of financial transactions, that can often be a lifetime. And so the investment that is required has increasingly consolidated this. Today, we're looking at a system in which there are roughly four, quote unquote, market makers. There's only a very few number of large players that are involved in this process. And as they pull away from the pack, the expertise and the money to be spent in managing the regulatory process is increasingly isolated and consolidated within those entities. To your point of what's the incentive to fix the system, the only incentive that I have to fix the system and to try to expose some of these components, actually, that's not fair. So to be very clear, by raising my public profile, by offering these types of observations, I am unquestionably generating value for myself and my firm. Right? We manage money for other firms or for other individuals and firms understanding and displaying my understanding of that system is clearly a form of advertising, right? So I do want to actually emphasize that, that, that I am not a disinterested party in this system. But I genuinely actually do believe that we as a society will be better served by understanding these dynamics and in a public forum, actually having the types of debates about what do we want the systems to accomplish. We have lost sight of the fact that markets are designed to facilitate the pricing of capital. And we've increasingly tried to turn them into utilities, as Ben Hunt at Epsilon Theory has so eloquently phrased, although I think a lot of people miss that. We're trying to turn them into vehicles that allow people to save for their retirements, with the objective being to guarantee an outcome for the retirement. Right? And we increasingly speak in these sort or to meet the obligations associated with a state pension so that taxes don't have to be raised to pay for the extraordinary benefits that have been guaranteed. When we do that sort of action, when we take a system that is designed for capital formation and transmute it into a system that is designed to generate an outcome, then increasingly the system needs to be bailed out. You need to have an activist fed. You need to have an activist government that is there to make sure that the utility is not failing, right? that the power stays on to extend the utility metaphor. In the process of doing that, what you're actually doing is you're rewarding effectively the crony capture. You're rewarding the regulatory capture and those systems that have already been put in place, creating rents that can be extracted from the rest of us as a population. That is a feature for those who are participating. And it's kind of the best type of feature because the vast majority of us are not aware of it. We're not even involved in the discussion of whether this is what we actually want. 
I want to pick up on that point of we're not aware of what's going on. Most people, when they invest in their BlackRock or Vanguard fund, they have no idea that the uh, the fee that they're they're seeing in front of them that's the the cost of that investment in terms of a management fee is not really their cost. Their cost is the potential incentive for BlackRock to be making a better buck by having stocks in their portfolio that are not really the right stocks to be investing in. Similarly, the investor who buys something on Robinhood and thinks that it's completely free of commissions and doesn't understand the role of those systemic internalizers. It's all about transparency and visibility. So I want to come now back to the vision that our Smarter Markets listeners have heard in prior episodes, really going back to our first episode with Robert Friedland. But then Miriam Ayati talked about specifically for the commodity market, a start to finish tokenization of commodities. What if we extended that to all financial assets and said, all stocks, all bonds, all everything are tokenized on a distributed ledger system so that there is complete transparency. It's possible for everybody to see everything that's going on. Does that solve this problem? And if so, why aren't we making more progress than we have so far toward that outcome? So it's a great question. And it's something that I've spoken also very publicly about the this idea of using a centralized ledger or using a smart contract to track that particular share or that particular debt security that you are buying and selling. What we want to be able to do is build the audit record that allows us to say, I sold that share. That share then went to Eric and Eric, I sold it for X. Eric bought it for Y. The spread between X and Y fell to the market maker. If that market maker took possession of it in the interim, right? How long did they take it? How long did they hold it? What was the return on capital that they generated in that process? A tokenized system actually allows you to do that. It allows you to figure all of that out. And I would suggest that's specifically why we're not making huge inroads in this, because they don't benefit from that transparency. The systems that are in place do not benefit from that transparency. And I go a step further and say that in general, when you talk about the Black Rocks and Vanguards of the world, in many ways, their growth is creating a wasteland of innovation. Because when you're including securities in an index fund, and that index fund then has a regulatory advantage in terms of the directed savings of Americans or other nationalities, simply not linked to Americans, when they have a regulatory advantage in attracting those assets, the rules of those index construction are ultimately going to be a key driver in terms of what becomes advantaged capital. And the rules of that index construction are very clear that they are effectively utilizing the most vanilla definitions of securities, equities and credit. Never the twain shall meet. There is no incentive for creating a unique financial structure because all the money that's coming into passive indices basically means those types of structures receive an advantage cost to capital. So switching from the issuer standpoint carries with it a a significant risk associated with a much higher cost of capital that could disadvantage them in the broader system. So you're saying that the reason you think that we haven't seen more progress, a lot of people have recognized ever since the tokenization and distributed ledger concepts first started gaining attention in finance in, in, I don't know, 2011, 12 or so, People have talked about tokenizing the entire financial system. You think the reason progress has been slow is the most well-moneyed parties don't benefit from the kind of transparency that that would offer to society. Is that right? Well, I, I think that's part of it, right? So I think that that, as I was alluding to, I think that there is a nefarious actor component to it, right? And I'm, I want to be very cautious when I use that phrase, because I'm not actually trying to suggest that, you know, those at Citadel or elsewhere are actively saying, ah, ha, ha, rubbing their hands together. Mr. Burns, like trying to, you know, profit at the expense of the average individual. Although I assure you, there is an element of that that's going on. They're able to couch it in the dynamics of, well, is it safe? Is it tested? Is it long-term secure? How do we know this technology is going to work? Right. And that slow progress is both a feature and a bug, right? It preserves the rents that we're describing. 
but it also does prevent terrible mistakes from being made. And, you know, I am far from the smartest person involved in this process. And I'm certainly not the person that you want to design the system from soup to nuts, right? So I don't hold any claim on having particularly unique insight on this. But the second thing that I would suggest is, is that there are related dynamics. And this is, of course, when I refer to things like passive indices that create a disincentive to move in this direction. If there was significant pressure coming from corporate America, the issuers who believed that they could get a lower cost of capital by pursuing this approach, then you might actually see this play out. But there's very real examples of companies that have tried this approach or tried innovative dynamics in issuing capital, right? creating unique securities. And in general, it doesn't work very well for them. Right. Most viewers would not be familiar with the specifics, but if you think about, for example, Google deciding to try to forego an IPO when it went public back in 2005 or a traditional IPO and instead, you know, proceeding along an auction. Right. Um, Bill Miller uh, at the time observed very clearly that that decision cost Google because it made it hard. It required people to do something different. And as a result, there was an opportunity to pick up Google at a significant discount to what it might otherwise have gone public. And those sorts of dynamics where companies are encouraged to maintain the status quo because of the flow of capital into things like BlackRock and Vanguard index funds, I would argue is actually equally as important as the idea that there's a Mr. Burns sort of figure sitting there trying to preserve those rents. It seems to me, though, that that is kind of a, a network effect discussion, because on one hand, if you don't have a financial infrastructure for trading tokenized assets, and it's a matter of doing something new and different that's you know not the way you're used to doing stuff, that makes perfect sense. But once you have an infrastructure in place that allows financial actors to trade tokenized assets, you could have a, a standardization where you could trade virtually any tokenized asset, whether it's fixed income or equity or a futures warehouse receipt or what have you, as long as you have some DeFi architecture that allows these financial tokens to follow some kind of standards, you ought to be able to ubiquitously deliver a, a platform that once you've got it, you could trade any tokenized asset on it. And that, I would think, would open a floodgate of innovation, creating new kinds of tokenized assets. I mean, that, that has ups and downs, potentially a, a lot of new flexibility, but also a lot of, uh, of fraud and, and people just introducing things like ICOs that you know never made sense, but people jumped on it because it was kind of the trend at the time. So is that a network effect thing where once you have a tokenized DeFi architecture, in the financial system, once you've got it, 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 it kind of one size fits all, or am I missing something there? Well, I, I think the challenge that I would highlight is that even if you build the quote unquote network, if you build the capability, you are presuming that if you build it, they will come, right? Um, we still have fax networks. We still have POTS telephone systems, right? Nobody really uses them, or increasingly they don't use them. So the networks exist, but the networks no longer have a compelling use case. And in the dynamic that we're referring to with tokenization, you need to create the compelling use case. That use case requires it to be cheaper or to offer better performance than the existing system. And when the money, this is the reason why I highlight the dynamics of passive investing and the advantage that it has in terms of attracting capital currently, that system preserves the existing architecture. That is the majority of the flow. And by participating on that system, you're able to take advantage of much cheaper cost of capital. You mentioned ICOs. ICOs are interesting in part because they effectively were fraudulent or unauthorized security sales that tapped into a... Um, Kickstarter or a GoFundMe sort of framework and effectively provided free capital to many of the participants that wanted to issue securities but would not have been able to do so successfully on an exchange. And, you know, the fallback and feedback from that, I think, demonstrates that, that you effectively saw an awful lot of money pile into absolutely useless ideas. There were, of course, some good ones 
that were involved in that process. And we may ultimately see some real benefits associated with some of the technologies that were funded and established in that. In the same way, by the way, that we'll see likely some benefit associated with many of these entities that deployed the capital they raised into things like Bitcoin and therefore can afford all sorts of basic research or interesting things that they might not otherwise have been able to do. But it's a very high price to pay for the innovation that we're receiving at this point. You say that it has to be cheaper or better or faster, or there has to be a, a draw for it. It seems to me that the draw of tokenization is its transparency, being able to know what really happened with your money and being able to see clearly that, hey, when I invest in this BlackRock fund, BlackRock makes 10 times more on lending my hard-earned savings shares out to short sellers than they do on managing the fund for me. And their incentives, therefore, are to own assets in the fund I've invested in, which are appealing to short sellers. Uh, it seems to me, I, I suppose that th those are things that you and I know about, th they're knowable, but it's just not widely known. Maybe I'm making a broken assumption to, to think that in a tokenized world, it would be more visible, but it seems to me that it should be because in a tokenized world, you can see the flow of assets. I would think that if we had this tokenized financial system, there would suddenly be the birth of an entirely new cottage industry of ledger analyzers that look at what's going on and show you visually what's happening to financial flows and where the money's going, which we can't see today because it's all opaque. Is that by itself enough of a draw to make people want to use it? I think it's really hard to argue that. And the, the reason why I would say that is just to what benefit, right? Does the knowledge of that allow me to extract additional costs or additional earnings from BlackRock or Vanguard? And, and the answer is no. Remember, they're already subsidizing my fund. And so if I take those profits away from them, it is unlikely that they will then be able to offer me my fund at the same low management fee. When you say that transparency, that transparency has to have value. And where I think, unfortunately, that value will emerge is in crisis. Right? When we discover that the presumed liquidity and the presumed ability to transact on those securities or that the securities that we owned were, were diligenced in the way that a fund manager, a portfolio manager is supposed to do. When we discover that that didn't actually happen, then the demand for transparency on decision-making, then the demand for transparency in terms of where the profit centers are, it'll emerge then. But I don't really see the incentive for it to emerge now. As I think this through, I realize, uh, you know, if there's anything that social media has taught us, this narrative that when it's free, that means you're the product and you're being sold out. That's very well known. A lot of people have been talking about that for several years now. That doesn't slow them down at all, does it? No, it, it really doesn't. And I mean, it, you know, there are those who correctly point to that and say, yes, but look at the benefits that I receive for becoming the product, right? I have access to Google search, for example. Instead of having to go to my library to research something or to settle a debate with my friends at dinner, I can simply pull out my phone, do a Google search and say, yes, you know, until the Hun did do X, Y, Z in this year, right? We're trading that convenience for becoming the product in the same way that we're trading the low management fees for the phenomenon that we're describing. The question is, like most public goods, Right, which is which an exchange and a market economy clearly is. Right? It is a public good to be able to use a system to improve the allocation of capital and encourage the development of infrastructure and businesses that are capable of fulfilling the needs of our society effectively. Are we destroying that public good in the same way that we pollute the environment without necessarily being aware of it? Let's take the, the question of incentives and turn that around on its head and say, look at it this way. You, by your own description, and all of the other smartest people in the finance industry, 
are all engaged essentially in the same thing, which is understanding the shortcomings and pitfalls and you know vulnerabilities of the current system and exploiting those vulnerabilities to your own profit and to the profit of the people who invest in your funds. And you certainly can't be faulted for doing that. You, you take a smart person, you show them financial incentives to you know make a very lucrative income doing something that's perfectly legal. Of course, that's what they're going to do. But I guess what I just can't help but think about is what would the world be like if we could somehow find a way to create an incentive for you and everyone else who's able to see these deficiencies and these shortcomings of the design of the system itself? What if we could find a way to align your interest with making the marketplace itself do a better job of serving society. If we had your brain power and all the other guys like you who are engaged in exploiting this system, instead engaged in improving the system, I think it could deliver society incredible benefits beyond most people's wildest dreams. But how do you create those incentives? Well, I think this is part of the challenge, right? And, and again, it goes back to the idea of what are you trying to accomplish? And so the idea behind stock markets or bond markets is that they facilitate capital formation and capital allocation. When we pervert them into utilities that are designed to secure retirements or allow people to achieve objectives of meeting pension hurdles, right? That's not actually what they're designed to do. And so it is a natural output. If you misspecify the utility of the system, and if you're trying to get it to do something it's not designed to do, that the system will become corrupted. It's unfortunate because there is no system that guarantees a successful retirement. There is no system that guarantees a life of leisure to everyone. This is part of the reason why people object so strongly to the idea of basic income, universal basic income, because they're aware there is no magic system that allows everyone to exist comfortably enough that they don't have to work. And instead, they pursue some form of self-actualization. Right? Work is a necessary condition to that self-actualization. And there has to be some hardship associated with not having that. Right? So we're, we're very far afield, but I'm using it as an example of that same thing. We've corrupted the system. We misunderstand what the role is. As an investor, regardless of how hard I work, I cannot secure for you a particular outcome. Right? I can try my best, but there is a stochastic dynamic associated with the forecasts that I'm making, the understanding of who's going to buy the securities that I'm currently purchasing in the future and at what price. Right? That uncertainty is a societal cost that has to be borne. We have to recognize that we cannot use a system of risk-taking to ensure outcomes. Let's consider something like the large funds, the Black Rocks and, and the Vanguards and so forth. A systemic risk that I know you've talked about in some of your other interviews is, hey, these guys are so big that if they ever had to unwind their positions and you know close their fund because of some market event, we don't know whether or not they could do so without you know, the stock going to zero as they were selling you know, the, the, these insanely large size positions. I have to believe that the people who today are in the business of figuring out how to exploit the limitations of the system and make a buck on these things are smart enough to be able to design stress testing tools to do, you know, AI based simulations to say, okay, what happens if we have this market dislocation, which is a, a, a self reinforcing reflexive vicious cycle that's causing an acceleration of selling and it forces a liquidation of one of these large funds. What does that do to the system? If we just had the stress testing tools that I'm sure the people that design these algorithmic trading systems, the prop traders are capable of designing, 
I'm sure that we could make the world a better place. But those guys don't have any incentive to design that system because they can make much more money figuring out how to, you know, I- exploit the the one second intervals that that Reg NMS allows them to exploit, or how to loan out their shares to short sellers. So they're not engaged in the things that we seem to need them to be engaged with. Do we need to, instead of counting on regulators to try to figure out how to do a stress test, somehow incentivize the people who are best qualified to design those things to do so? So I, I would harp on the work of uh, another individual you know, who is totally unlikable, but has some generally good insights about many of these dynamics, which is Nassim Taleb and, and this, I, this concept of anti-fragility. The modeling that you are describing, right, the use of AI to simulate these things, can't actually be done. There's too many variables. The initial conditions are too uncertain. And these firms that you're highlighting actually have done the work to know this. The way that they behave in increasingly uncertain conditions, higher volatility conditions, is to reduce the amount of capital that they put at risk. In other words, it creates a positive feedback loop, positive meaning reinforcing, not a positive outcome, in which more uncertain conditions result in less capital being deployed, which creates more uncertain conditions, which results in less capital being deployed. All right. That is the underlying structure of the system when you have private institutions and private individuals that have the right but not the obligation to provide the type of liquidity that we're describing. If you attempt to run a simulation, all you can effectively do is say, what is the probability of various outcomes? You certainly can't, or or what is the rough probability associated with these outcomes? And because we don't have all of the data inclusive of the impact that we have through our knowledge of the system, right? It inherently becomes a Schrodinger's cat type dynamic. By opening the box, we change the conditions. That is an unknowable system. So what you can do is you can build robustness into that system, but you can't ensure outcomes. And those who've listened to me in the past know that I direct people to the work of Ole Peters on this idea of ergodic versus non-ergodic systems. The risk controls that we have encouraged regulators to deploy on the system are inherently ergodic, meaning that the average over time is the same as the average of an ensemble. And so a system that fits that very well is rolling dice. If you and I were to individually roll dice a thousand times, we would receive a distribution of outcomes that is functionally identical to a thousand people rolling dice at the same time. But that's not how markets work. A thousand people all investing at the exact same time will have radically different outcomes than a single person investing a thousand separate times. And so the systems just can't be resolved, right? It, it, it is an inherently risky system. And until we fully acknowledge that and instead focus ourselves on building robustness into the system or anti-fragility into the system, as compared to trying to ensure outcomes, it's always going to fail. Mike, with all of your knowledge of this, what would you do? Let's say you know tomorrow you're... You're put in charge, you're forced out of your lucrative job and into one that has to serve society by making the world better. What would you change in order to adjust the system of incentives so that the the brains, of which there's plenty on Wall Street, are a little bit more aligned with making the markets themselves better so that they serve society better? Well, the single biggest place that I would start is actually with that understanding of the system. Right. We have a very deep and and it's part of what excites me in all candor, right, is that we have a very deep misunderstanding of economics that has permeated the academy and therefore permeated the political environment. Right. John Maynard Keynes expression, you know, slave to a defunct economist holds more true today than at almost any time in history. And so if the ideas on which it are on, on which we build these systems are flawed. And we believe, for example, that we can guarantee outcomes, right? Like we can guarantee probabilistically the distribution of dice rolls. Then the system will fail. And so we have to redesign the system to accept that we can't do that. We have to treat the provision of insurance on a societal basis, things like social security or welfare 
or a basic safety net that we're able to provide to people as an output from societal successes in aggregate is distinctly different from something like saving for retirement. We need to recognize that those who have been most successful exploiting a system, right? Someone like myself, who certainly has not succeeded to the level that many others have in this space, but ultimately lives off of a system that if society didn't provide it, exactly as you say, I would be forced out of my lucrative career and be required to do something else. And we need to accept that that is actually a benefit of participating in the system And effectively, there should be a surcharge on lottery-type winnings associated with that system, regardless of how clever and talented I am in that process. We just can't escape that dynamic of social awareness and responsibility. And I think the attempts to do so have led to far more dangerous attempts to restructure that in the form that we're seeing in many of the social issues of today. Would the full tokenization of the financial system, the the DeFi model that Charlie McGarrett talked about in last week's episode, would that help to create the transparency needed for you to be able to improve the system? It seems to me like that that gives you the basis for regulators and, and for everyone else to have the ability to see what's going on and figure out how to make the system better. What it does is exactly what you and Charlie alluded to, and Charlie's a good friend, a wonderful, wonderful guy, by the way, is it gives you that transparency. It gives you the ability to actually audit the data, right? I mean, it's remarkable when you think about the number of market events that we look at and we functionally say some variant of, huh, that was interesting. I wonder what happened there, right? And we're not able to actually resolve that because we don't have the ability to do this, right? That, that lack of transparency really hampers our ability to accurately diagnose the system. One of my favorite examples is actually the work of Richard Werner, who is a German academic who did a really interesting study in 2014 to address this idea of do banks create money? And what he actually did was he radio tagged, effectively the equivalent of putting you know a carbon isotope into a system. He radio tagged a mortgage application and watched it go through the banking system. And with that transparency, was able to figure out that at no point in the process did the bank stop to say, is there money here? And it wasn't even considered. And that's prima facie evidence that the banks are actually capable of quote unquote printing money. And so when you have that type of transparency, it allows you to solve or answer questions that you otherwise can't do. And so, yes, I absolutely think moving to a tokenization or that type of a system that allows us to do that type of analysis is critical to improving the system. But at the end of the day, we need to recognize that that what we're trying to solve is an inherently uncertain system. Mike, it sounds like I have a different perception than you do, and I, I have no idea whether any part of what I think is right or wrong, but I've been telling myself the reason that we're not ready yet to get to a fully tokenized system is about technology, specifically distributed ledgers as they're designed today. You've got a choice between a fully decentralized system, which requires proof of work and mining and all of the ridiculous overhead associated with that. It just isn't scalable to the full capacity of the financial system. Or you've got distributed ledgers that don't require mining, but they're not completely decentralized. Some of them rely on a permissioning agent which could be corrupted and that potentially creates a security risk. I've been telling myself it's not until we get to distributed ledger technology being fully and completely decentralized without requiring the overhead of a proof-of-work validated blockchain that we eventually get the ability to completely tokenize everything and make the world a better place. I've been thinking it's a technology gate that's preventing us from getting there until ledger technology gets better. It sounds like you're saying, no, it's really more an incentive gate of who are the big actors in the financial system and is it in their best interest to see the system improve in this way because improving the system for the benefit of society may not benefit them in terms of their own vested interest in the system staying the way it is. Is that right? Unfortunately, I think that's right. I mean, I I do think that technology is a constraint. And I do think that 
that's one of the positives associated, as I alluded to, with things like the ICO craze and, and some of the nonsense that has occurred within the crypto space. It has provided funding in the same way that the funding in the 1990s facilitated the build out of the infrastructure that has continued to be used and exploited for the internet, dramatically improving communications. But that's ultimately not the core barrier. Core barrier is a regulatory framework. It is a system of monopoly or near monopoly type conditions, certainly an oligopoly type dynamic. There is a system of incentives that is established and set up to discourage innovation within the system. It seems like we have a trend where, uh, you know, I, I suppose some people would argue that ESG is a scam perpetrated by Wall Street to tell people what they want to hear. And I think to some extent it's true in some areas, but the, the desire of investors to, to exhibit social responsibility and make the world a better place through their investments, even if their well-meaning intentions are being exploited in some cases today, it seems to me that that trend toward the capital wanting to do the right thing for the world with their money is very real. And I would think that that would eventually drive us to more transparency. Do you agree that there's a very real trend in terms of more responsibility on the part of the owners of the capital? And if so, how does that eventually transmit into the system? So I I think, unfortunately, that what I am seeing is more of a modeling of that desire, right? So allocating your capital to a systematically constructed ESG type framework where it is the S&P minus, you know, a few companies that have been labeled for using slave labor, you know, or for for producing hydrocarbons or whatever you want to label as your ESG type framework. That is unfortunately a, um, I, I would argue actually a step in the wrong direction, right? You are encouraging the dynamics of shunning rather than encouraging if you want to take personal responsibility for that, again, what you actually need is the transparency. This goes back to your conversation that you had with Robert Friedland, for example, with, I need to know where the copper was produced. I need to know where the leather was produced, or is it a synthetic leather that is, you know, lovingly handcrafted from kelp that uh, uh, was produced in a painless environment and bathed with the warm seas of the Sargasso Sea, right? I need to understand those components or at least have transparency if I want to pursue an educated approach. And there the tools associated with the internet and the availability of data that you're describing can facilitate that. But simply choosing to demonstrate my social awareness by allocating my capital to a system like ESG, I actually think discourages us from doing this. And in many situations, I think one of the biggest things that we are at risk of is by exploiting that desire to do good and doing so in a false way. We're actually setting up an increasingly nihilistic and cynical system where people are capable of dismissing that almost out of hand and saying, okay, that creates huge disincentives for people to behave in certain ways. And ultimately, I think that's one of the real challenges that we have is is that we have allowed these trends to be promoted and popularized without an attempt to educate ourselves on what we're actually doing. And that's breeding much of the cynicism that we see that in many ways prevents us from coming together in a cohesive framework. I think we're probably in violent agreement here, Mike, but I want to just make sure we're saying the same thing. What I would say is I think there is a very bona fide desire on the part of a lot of investors to do the right thing for the world with their money. Now, that is being exploited by Wall Street. And I think a lot of ESG money managers are in the business of telling their clients whatever they want to hear while not really doing anything at all to make the world a better place. But I do think that the the desire of the capital owners to invest responsibly is there. They're just being taken for a ride right now. And I think you and I agree that they're being taken for a ride. What needs to be done in order to fix that system so that people who want to invest their capital responsibly can actually get social responsibility value that's real, not just being told what they want to hear? Well, I I think, unfortunately, it 
you know, you've described the basic dynamics. We need a technological advance that allows us to increasingly track that information. Unfortunately, tracking information requires energy usage. And when you have something like blockchain, for example, that is inherently energy inefficient, right, has a tremendous overhead, as you were highlighting, it's ultimately not feasible to pursue it along that path. We will need additional technological innovation. Of course, as I was saying, the challenge is, is by trying to do this prematurely and by trying to extract marginally increased fees. So instead of charging three basis points for a fund, I charge 11 basis points for a, an ESG fund. That's pure profit if I'm actually not doing anything. Right? It is a way to extract higher fees and should ultimately feed into that cynicism that I was describing that ultimately is quite harmful to the system. You know, there, there is no easy answer. People need to accept the fact that they have to take a more active role in their investment process. They can't simply outsource it and presume that it is being done well. And they also need to accept the fact that the process of investing is inherently uncertain. And we just aren't treating it that way. We're trying to establish conditions under which a fund manager can simultaneously be held liable for failing to meet my objectives of saving towards my retirement or performing in, in line with a benchmark. And that benchmark, of course, is, is then expected to deliver a return that guarantees my successful re retirement as a utility along those lines. And at the same time, they're not supposed to charge me anything extra for it. At the same time, they're not supposed to potentially make a mistake. Right? We're, we're trying to create a system that just can't exist in the real world. And as a result, if the system can't exist in the real world, those who tell you that it can, by definition, are exploiting you in one way, shape, or form. They're lying to you. Okay, Mike. So the message is clear, and I couldn't agree more. It's personal responsibility. If you think you want to be responsible as an investor... Telling Wall Street guys, hey, I want to be responsible, sell me an ESG product, and trusting the sell side to uh, do the right thing for the world is not a good strategy. These are not trustworthy people. You have to take personal responsibility for being personally involved in making sure that the people managing your money really and truly are pursuing the kinds of ESG goals that you're paying them to pursue. So that's one point. But now let's take the other side of that, which is assuming that we can encourage a lot more investors to take more personal responsibility for holding Wall Street accountable. What do we do inside the industry to change the design of markets, both to make them more transparent? And you know, if, if what we're trying to do is eventually get to really and truly delivering on these ESG goals, not just making people feel warm and fuzzy about it, but actually changing the world for the better. As you said, Robert Friedland's idea of you got to have visibility to how that copper was produced in order to know whether what you're investing in is responsible or not responsible. What else can we do to change the system to provide the transparency needed for people when they are taking that personal responsibility to be able to tell whether or not their money is being responsibly invested toward those ESG objectives? Well, I, I think, unfortunately, that we're not yet in a position that the data is available to allow us to monitor that, right? So I do think that you are correct, that there is an element of technology and there is an element of technology development associated with that. We need to create the incentives for people to build those systems, whether that's the ability to sell copper at a marginally higher price or whether that is the ability to attract the marginal investment dollar if you have a demonstrated capability along those lines. The idea that there is not a cost associated with that is silly, right? Whether that comes in the form of additional fees that have to be paid to managers for doing the work, whether that comes in reduced performance because you are unwilling to invest in less socially acceptable investment areas, and therefore a higher expected return accrues to quote unquote sin areas, we need to accept that and accept those costs as a society. And we have a very hard time doing that in an environment like we have today. It's one of the things I would, would really highlight is the absence of a legitimate social contract that encourages risk-taking, encourages people to experiment, and encourages people to fail, which was really what the United States was all about, right? The United States 
was a, and the new world broadly with apologies to those who are already here, it created an exit where people could start over. And we reinforced that over and over again throughout the 19th century. We created systems of limited liability. We reformed debtor contracts to allow personal bankruptcy and eliminated things like debtor prisons in which you had to be repurchased as a standing member of society. By getting rid of those, we encouraged risk-taking and innovation. And we've forgotten that. And so I, I think there is both a personal responsibility aspect to it and a societal coming together to say, we encourage risk-taking, we encourage success, we forgive failure, and where extraordinary success occurs, we recognize you know, the very poorly phrased, you did not build that, alienated so many individuals because they just did not want to hear it. But the reality is what you're actually describing is your success is predicated on the system in which it occurs. And we should recognize that that is effectively the same dynamic as saying, you need to understand that extraordinary outcomes, lottery type winnings are not a direct result of your entitlement or your capabilities. And so we do need to figure out ways to allow people to return more to society in that framework. And it sounds like we agree that the complete tokenization of the system, with the caveats that there are both some uh, stumbling blocks in terms of the technology being almost completely there, but not quite yet in terms of distributed ledger technology, and also the, the hurdles that have to be overcome in terms of incentives of actors in the financial industry. It's going to take a bit to get there. But how do you see it eventually playing out? Is this just a matter of the people who design the tokenized asset exchanges and put them into operation are the big winners here? Or does this have to go through a process of lobbying government regulators to change their system designs first before the solutions are built? So I, I have a combination of a very dark view and a, or a cynical view, which should be unsurprising given everything else I've described, as well as my career path, and a hopeful one. Right. The cynical one is, is that the system is extraordinarily large and the special interests have become dominant in the process of regulation. I think a great exercise for people is to read back-to-back Amity Schley's The Forgotten Man and Matt Stoller's Goliath, which are two books that I think actually frame the 1930s in almost the exact opposite direction. Amity Schley's focuses on the unintended consequences of government policy, in particular, the unintended consequences of the dynamics of experimentation, which we're all experiencing firsthand in the reaction to the coronavirus pandemic. Matt Stoller, on the other hand, highlights the other side of it, which is the unseen consequences of not having that experimentation, of not refocusing the system on delivering value to the citizen as compared to the corporate or the elite. And we need to decide that we're going to make a choice. And if we choose to ultimately place our faith in the common man and the idea that the individual has value, regardless of the outcomes that they accrue within a system, then we're going to have to move to a system that reinforces that, i.e. regulation that encourages systems to be designed for the public good as compared to public systems that are designed for private good or private success. And that's unfortunate because it, it does open up the door to the abuse of that through a public system, right? Systems of, of autocracy or dictatorship, et cetera, or totalitarianism can arise unless the checks and balances are placed on the power of the government in that framework. But that is ultimately our responsibility. It's the same thing as ESG. We each need to take that personal responsibility in deciding that we are going to limit the power of the government while simultaneously making sure that the system is set up to benefit all of us rather than the few. Mike, I can't thank you enough for a terrific interview, but before we close, you are in the business of helping your investors to make very significant returns by exploiting, as you've described it yourself, some of the limitations and shortcomings of the current system. What do you actually do at Logica Funds and how can people find out more about it? So at Logico, we run portfolios that are designed to take advantage of what we think is an increasingly volatile framework. So our portfolios are constructed to be what's referred to as long volatility. That means that in periods of crisis or extraordinary move moves in markets, our funds should outperform. 
ironically, because of the regulatory costs and setup of the current system, our products, unfortunately, are only available to those of high net worth or ultra high net worth, I would have referred to as accredited or qualified investors or institutions uh, that can choose to allocate capital under that framework. And so unfortunately, you know, a, a simple regulatory framework that limits the number of investors you can have, for example, means that I'm ultimately unable to broadly serve the public good in this type of environment. But that is, as you pointed out, those are the conditions that are in place. And it's my job to actually exploit it as compared to uh, necessarily moralize on it. At Logica, I play the role of portfolio manager and chief strategist. Uh, along with my partner, Wayne Himmelson, we direct the allocation of the capital in what we think are increasingly uncertain markets and develop strategies to take advantage of that. You can find out more information on us by going to our website at www.logicafunds.com or by following myself on Twitter at ProfPlum99 or Wayne on Twitter at Wayne Himmelsign, H-I-M-E-L-S-E-I-N. And hopefully people can find what we write. Uh, we put regular research pieces out on our blog or on our, our website and send materials out to investors that share the information and insights that we try to have around markets, uh, both to help them understand what we're doing and to facilitate better decision making on their part in terms of markets. Um, hopefully people find that interesting and valuable. And again, for our accredited investors and qualified purchasers in the audience, it's logicafunds.com in order to find out more information. Mike, we're going to leave it there in the interest of time. Listeners, we want to make Smarter Markets a listener-driven program, and we're definitely listening to your feedback. When I interviewed hedge fund manager Kyle Bass on the Macro Voices podcast, we got quite a bit of feedback from listeners reacting to Kyle's prediction that Singapore would be the big benefactor of Hong Kong's loss of independence from China. Many of you asked for more perspective on Singapore's government and how cooperative their regulators are likely to be with innovative companies who seek to redefine how financial markets work by tokenizing asset markets. So my guest for next week's episode will be Frank Lavin. As the former U.S. ambassador to Singapore, Frank knows the Singaporean government from the inside out and is extremely well qualified to weigh in on how cooperative Singapore is likely to be when companies seeking to design smarter markets using new technologies consider Singapore as their regulatory jurisdiction. All of that is coming up next week on Smarter Markets. Listeners, please help us get the word out about Smarter Markets. It's not every day you come across a podcast with guests on the caliber of Jeff Curry, Miriam Ayati, and Robert Friedland. And we have a veritable who's who of industry legends lined up for interviews in coming weeks. Your ratings and reviews on Apple Podcasts and other podcast platforms mean the world to us, as does your help spreading the word via word of mouth about Smarter Markets. For the Macro Voices Podcast Network, I'm Eric Townsend. See you again next week for another installment of Smarter Markets. That concludes this week's episode of Smarter Markets. For free episode transcripts, visit smartermarketspod.com. Smarter Markets is 100% listener-driven, so please help more people discover the podcast by leaving a review on Apple Podcasts or your favorite podcast platform. Smarter Markets is presented for informational and entertainment purposes only. The information presented on Smarter Markets should not be construed as investment advice. Always consult a licensed investment professional before making investment decisions. The views and opinions expressed on Smarter Markets are those of the participants and do not necessarily reflect those of the show's hosts or sponsors. Smarter Markets, its producers, sponsors, and hosts, Eric Townsend and Abex Technologies, shall not be liable for losses resulting from investment decisions based on information or viewpoints presented on Smarter Markets.